Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We have been in the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks, and we'll be in it a few weeks longer. If you remember from last week, we saw that Jesus alone perfectly fulfilled the law. But this week, we are going to listen to Jesus as the perfect teacher. And the passage that the kids and I studied in Exodus 32 is poignant in light of where we will be this morning. I want to pray at the beginning of this message because as I studied this, I have to tell you, I was convicted. Jesus is an amazing teacher, and and you'll feel it in this passage. And my goodness, y'all, this convicted me to hear from Jesus. So let's just pause at the beginning, and I'm going to ask the Lord to bless us with ears to hear, and that we could hear that right mixture of truth and grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that we can trust this is truth without any mixture of error. I thank you that this word reveals you, our Lord and Savior, that you were perfect where we fall short. And Jesus, I'm so grateful that you don't call us to the Christian life in our own power. I am reminded again this week of how frivolous that would be for me to try to do enough to please you or to uh, practice everything you've called me to on my own. I can't, but you can. And you call me to an abundant life. You call all of us as Christians to this beautiful and narrow road. I pray that you encourage us, you strengthen us, and you help us to take you seriously this morning. I pray that we'd leave both filled and propelled to keep walking with you. And I pray for this church, that we would run a marathon together, helping one another, lifting one another up, carrying each other at times. Don't let us run by ourselves, but let us run together. I ask these things, Jesus, please, in your name, amen. So a buddy of mine uh, had an interesting year last year and, and had a difficult time because his daughter, one day just out doing, I think it was cartwheels, but landed real awkwardly and broke some of the bones in her ankle. And they were just, if you know anything about the, the way that the ankle connects to the foot, it's just a mess in there. I mean, it's beautiful the way God designed it, but the, the tendons and the muscles and the ligaments and the bone, it is just all mixed in. So it was going to require a surgery to, to get set back so that she you know, could still have a full range of motion and she was still growing. Anyway, long story short, he, uh, you know, was going to have to pay some hefty money in order to make this surgery happen. And he had set money aside in a health savings account. Well, to, you know, bill that account, he had to have the little HSA credit card and he had lost it. So he had to request a new credit card. And in the midst of all of this, he was moving. And so when he requested the credit card, he had forgot to update the address. So it got sent to the other house and he never got it. And so he called and was like, hey, you know, I need this credit card. No, no problem, sir. Uh, one will be sent to your new address uh, very, very quickly. Well, a week went by and he didn't hear anything. So he calls, you know, the health insurance agency back up and says, where's my card? And they said, oh, you needed to verify your identity first before we can send you a card. The card hasn't even been sent. My friend was livid. 
why didn't you tell me this before? Don't you know my daughter's in pain? You don't care. And maybe a few choice other words. And my friend is a dear Christian. He's, he's a deacon at his church. But let's just say it, things got a little testy over, over you know, not this card not being sent out. And so the, the um, customer service representative said, well, sir, uh, if you'd like, I'll go ahead and verify your identity. And expedite that card. Okay. And sir, to verify your identity, there is a security question. Can I ask it to you? Yes. Ask it to me. Well, the security question is, who is the most important person to you? And my friend paused for a second. The answer he had given beforehand was Jesus. And right after he'd blown up at this person on the phone, he had to say, Jesus, you know, I mean, it was just so embarrassing and awkward. I mean, he had lit into this woman. And then, of course, now, yes, he's a Christian. Um, I want to ask you, with, with that funny story in mind, how do you deal with those kind of conflict situations, those, those points where you, you have to make a choice? In this case, he was very frustrated. He ended up having to apologize to this poor woman. But there's these points in life where I think they reveal what we really believe. Are you going to choose purity or impurity? Are you going to turn the other cheek or are you going to get revenge? Are you going to fight for your marriage or are you going to throw in the towel? Are you going to keep your word even when it's going to cost you, or are you going to try to wiggle out of it? Are you going to show someone you care who makes it really difficult to love them? Or are you going to just ignore them? I think these are the moments where we find out, well, what do I actually believe about Jesus? Last week, we heard Jesus call us to a qualitatively better righteousness than the external righteousness of the Pharisees. We talked about getting off of murder road uh, because rather than murder being like this fence where we could come really close to as long as we didn't cross over and actually pull the trigger, Jesus said murder is this road or this path that from anger in our thoughts to anger with our words to, you know, planning to actually doing it. It's a whole road called murder. Well, today Jesus is going to explore this idea of a heart righteousness and calling us to get off of the wrong paths by looking at five other roads. I call these roads adultery alley, divorce drive, swearing circle, revenge terrace, and hatred way. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me as we listen to Jesus teach what it looks like to get off of these wrong roads. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, God tells us, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Some of us at some point in life, I've started seeing a few of those gray hairs pop in. I would say, amen, (laughs) just can't do it. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, let's go first to what I call adultery alley. Look with me back in verse 28. After saying you've heard that you shall not commit adultery, Jesus says that if you look with lustful intent at a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Each of these has this external righteousness, the way that the Pharisees taught it, and then this internal righteousness, the way that Jesus teaches it. The external righteousness of the Pharisees said, well, adultery is, doesn't really occur until you've actually committed the act of having sex outside of marriage. So a married man has sex with a woman that's not his wife. A married woman has sex with a man that is not her husband. That's adultery, right? Jesus would say yes and no. Adultery is more than and not less than just the sexual act that is outside of God's will. It starts a long time before that sexual act. In his very helpful book called Purity Principal Randy Alcorn tells this story. Brad was a seminary student preparing for ministry. One night he argued with his wife. Upset, he drove to Starbucks to think things through. Soon, Brad was engrossed in a conversation with a young woman. A few hours later, he was in bed with her. 
Brad came to me ashamed. How can I tell my wife? Will she ever forgive me? It was so sudden. There was no warning. It came out of the clear blue sky. Or did it? Brad had worked nonstop to put himself through seminary. He had commune, or excuse me, he had come to subtly resent his wife, seeing her and the children as obstacles. He no longer dated her or communicated with her on a deep level. He'd been looking at provocative magazines and he had watched raunchy movies. All of this culminated in the horrible episode that happened without warning. The truth is, sexual sin never comes out of the blue. Here's the point. Jesus commands us to get off of adultery alley when the temptation begins by practicing radical amputation. You see, Brad's sexual sin didn't begin that night at Starbucks when he went over to the young woman's house. It began probably months prior where he was angry with his wife and and they didn't resolve it. They let that bitterness fester. It, it, It continued down adultery alley when he stopped talking to her and stopped dating her and he started looking at things he shouldn't and watching movies he shouldn't. And, and then when that fight happened, he, he continued down adultery alley when he, he had this conversation with the young woman. That was not an innocent conversation. He knew very well what he was doing. You see, having sex with the woman he wasn't married to was just that last step down adultery alley, not the first. And so Jesus gives us this powerful command to repent or to turn off of it way back here, not when we're way down here. And he, he uses this metaphor for gouging out an eye and cutting off a hand. And I remember being taught once, and I think it's so helpful, that if he meant it literally that I needed to go get a hacksaw or I needed to, to go get a screwdriver, then blind people apparently would never struggle with lust and, and maimed people would never struggle with lust. And if you've ever talked to somebody who's handicapped, they'll tell you, oh yeah, still very much a struggle. And so he's using a strong metaphor to say, take a strong stand against sin. Remember David with Bathsheba? The adultery didn't start in the bedroom. It started on the balcony. When one night he had stayed back from going with his men and fighting, and he looked out and he he decided to look and watch as she took a bath. Well, Jesus would say, David, 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 if the balcony is going to cause you to sin, get off the balcony. Even better, get rid of the balcony. Take it out entirely. I don't care how much it costs you. Take a strong stand against sin. Whatever it is that tempts you to sin, get rid of it. And for men, typically, that sin that I'm saying leads all the way down adultery alley starts in our eyes with what we see. Ask yourself, men, why am I doing this thing? And be honest before the Lord. Am I doing it because I like that it leads me to lust? Here's just a few questions. And and I don't mean these as you have to do every one of them, but I do want you to ask them. Is your smartphone leading you down adultery alley? causing you to look at things you shouldn't, pornography or sexually provocative images. If so, get rid of the smartphone. Don't just 
Hope that it will get better later. Get a dumb phone. I looked last night. Mint Mobile and Metro PCS still sell flip phones. I mean it. Get rid of it. I thought one of the bravest things a man I knew did one night was he took a hammer to his smartphone and busted it to pieces and bought an old flip phone. And that was brave because he was practicing radical amputation, getting rid of that which caused him to walk down adultery alley. Maybe it's a computer. If that's causing you to walk down, get rid of it. Or at least put accountability software on it like Covenant Eyes or Accountable to You. Talk to me about that afterwards. I'd love to help you in that way. Maybe it's a magazine aisle or a subscription that causes you to lust. Cancel the subscription. You say, I've always read it and, and it'll be hard going without it. Jesus would say, I don't care. Get rid of it. Maybe it's the movies on Netflix or on Hulu that is causing you to lust. Cancel Netflix. Cancel Hulu. I can hear the objections now because I've said them, right? Uh, this is so radical. How am I going to live without a smartphone? Ask somebody in here who's over 65. They've lived a long time without a smartphone. And they'd probably tell you they're doing just fine. Well, how am I going to, what am I going to watch if I don't have Netflix? Again, ask somebody older than 30. I promise they've made it through life without Netflix. It's okay. God will sustain the air you breathe if you don't have Netflix. Again, but listen to Jesus on this. Look at verses 29 and 30 twice. He says it's better to get rid of Netflix than that your whole body be thrown into hell. I mean, really? Really, we want to face Jesus someday and have to say, well, the reason that I'm not going to heaven is because I liked Netflix more than you? Jesus pulls the heaviest kind of punch I can imagine when he says, hey, listen to this. Those of you who love lust and walk down adultery alley, hell is real. It's forever and it's where those go who continue in rebellion against God by choosing sexual sin over Jesus. Now, let me say something here. Is there forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone? Yes. Amen. Even for those of us who are trapped in sexual sin. Is there power in the Holy Spirit to put off sexual sin? Yes. Praise the Lord. And if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, he will empower you progressively to change even in this area. And so to help us, Jesus issues this strong warning so that when you get close to stepping down adultery alley, you'll hear him saying, wait a minute, don't go there. Don't take purity as this optional issue only for a few saintly people hear Jesus. He's serious. Don't play around. Get away from that which causes you to walk down adultery alley. Uh, I'd just say a, a thing here. If this is you and this is a habitual sin, maybe it's somewhere over here and, and you're trapped in a pornography struggle, talk to somebody today. Maybe you come down, talk to me so I can pray for you. Maybe you talk to one of the elders here. You're going to need help. This is not an easy sin habit to break. Talk to Pastor Chuck. Talk to one of us. Get prayer and get help. This is something that you will need assistance breaking out of. Let me also tell you this. Um, it's worth it. Purity is a hard fight, but it's worth it. 
It's part of the abundant life Jesus calls us to as Christians, and it is a joy. So too is faithful marriage, and that's where Jesus goes next, what I'm calling divorce drive. Look with me back to the text. Jesus said that everyone who divorces his wife, I'm in verse 32, commits adultery, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and Moses had actually issued an amazing command inspired by the Holy Spirit so that women's rights were defended. He said, look, if you're going to divorce your wife, you can't just send her off. You've got to write a certificate of divorce and you've got to give her a copy. Now, believe it or not, way back in Moses' day, this was radical, that women would be afforded such legal rights and standing. It's not how things were done in Egypt. It's not what was modeled for Israel. But God made them male and female both in his image. And so God values both men and women. And God said, no, no, no. Women are going to have equal rights under the law as long as it's in my land. And that's why they had to write this certificate of divorce. But by Jesus' day... They were teaching, oh, you want to divorce your wife? Well, that's easy. Just make sure you check all the boxes, give her a certificate, and out she goes. And Jesus was having none of it. This would come up later when the Pharisees would basically hold Jesus' feet to the fire and ask him in Matthew 19, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus responded by quoting from the Old Testament. He says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus basically said, look, you made a commitment to God. Marriage is supposed to be for life. And so the Pharisees challenged him from Deuteronomy 24, and they said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They are, of course, twisting Moses' words as if, you know, Moses is basically saying, hey, at some point, you just got to get a divorce. There's no other option. You, you got to give her a certificate and send her away. And that is definitely not what Moses was implying in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus, listen to how he responds. This is right out of Matthew 19. This is starting in verse 8. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. What's he saying? Well, he's laying down this bedrock expectation that marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman before Almighty God for life. That's the ideal that God invented when he made this thing called marriage. And so he said, divorce is supposed to be wrong and rare. There's only a few exceptions when divorce is permissible. In fact, if we were to go back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, during a time when divorce was very common in the church, you know, a lot like today, God uses incredibly strong language when he says, I hate divorce. That's Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. So here's the principle Jesus teaches. Divorce drive, this whole road, God hates it. God hates divorce. And we should too. Divorce also should be the last 
resort for any Christian couple. Now, I'm going to pause here for a minute. There's probably someone here this morning or someone online or both who's been divorced. And I want you to hear me right now. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Praise God, Jesus went to the cross knowing you would be divorced someday. And he died for you all the same. There is forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ for married people and for divorced people, for single people and for widows. There is redemption. It is not as though divorce makes you somehow beyond the love and forgiveness of God. So please do not hear me saying that. And we have to hear scripture when God says he hates divorce. You've probably heard that divorce has become basically just as common in the church as it is out of the church. And while we could debate the statistics of that, it certainly has become very common for Christian marriages to end prior to death because of some kind of disillusion of marriage. I think Jesus would say, hey, before you get to the point of signing the papers and ending the marriage, way back here, get off of divorce drive before you get down there. There was a friend of mine, I'm going to call him Tom, you know, uh, just, just I don't feel right in sharing his name, but Tom came to me one day and said his marriage was over. He'd caught his wife sending uh, romantic text messages to a coworker. And when he confronted her about it, she claimed that it had not gone any further, but that yes, she really loved this coworker and was no longer in love with Tom. So Tom came to me and said, it's, it's over, Pastor. I mean, I, I've left the house. She's got the house right now. I'm staying with my mother and, and um, all my friends are telling me it's time to lawyer up, that, that I better go ahead and defend myself because otherwise she's going to take the kids and she's going to take the house and, and take it all. And I remember looking at poor Tom, and Tom was a Christian. Tom had taught the Bible so well, and I was just heartbroken over this. And, and something stirred in me, a, a godly kind of anger, where I, I got for just a minute this glimpse of why God hates divorce. Because it just, it destroys things. And I thought of those kids and what it was going to be like for them uh, to, to go through this and wonder, did my mom hate me or did my dad hate me? What did I do wrong that, that they left? And, and I just, I got so angry or, or mad sad over what was going on. And so I told him, it was not time to give up yet. That he needed to ignore the advice of those friends telling him that he needed to lawyer up, that it was not time to get a divorce, it was time to fight like never before. And I challenged him to commit to praying every single day for this woman who had broken his heart and made him feel about an inch tall. And he did not like it. I remember that conversation. But reluctantly, he agreed to wait and agreed to pray. And something incredible happened the Holy Spirit got involved. And, and I got to tell you, this, this woman got a lawyer and she, she tried at the very beginning to get a judge to grant 
sole custody of the kids. And God intervened because the judge said no, that this man was a godly father and he was not going to deny him the right to see his kids. And so they started splitting custody even before the divorce was finalized. And that woke this woman up to the road she was walking down. And an incredible thing happened when she was miserable. She realized that she'd never become a Christian. And the Holy Spirit got involved and this man just prayed and prayed and she gave her life to Christ. And then she realized that she was throwing away a good marriage and that this co-worker didn't even love her. And so she got rid of this co-worker and begged for the husband to take her back. And after counseling and a process, they moved back together. They didn't get a divorce and they're happily married to this day. And it all happened because a man prayed and decided not to go down divorce drive, even though everybody was telling him that was the inevitable end of what was happening. Now, not every story ends that way. I know, I know. But hear Jesus when he says, don't go down divorce drive. Now, I'm about to share some very practical advice for those of you who are married and are struggling. But, but let me say something real quick. If you right now are being physically abused inside of a marriage, the most loving thing you can do for your spouse is to call the police and get this person experiencing punishment under the law because it may be that that's what they need to wake up. And so it is not a wise or loving thing to take abuse. That's wrong. You need to call the police. That said, those of you who are walking in marriage and are struggling, let me give you some practical steps to fight together for your marriage and repent and get off of divorce drive. Number one, hold hands and pray together. I love this one. I got this advice as a young married man. Uh, this is the first commitment I have any couple do when they come for counseling. It recognizes that two people need a third person to make a marriage. And that third person is Almighty God. And so you hold hands every day. And, and it may be that you're mad at each other when you do it. I don't care. Hold that person's hand. And if all you can do is say, God, please help us. Okay, start there. Hold hands and pray for one another every day. Number two, date your spouse. Hey, if, if you say, well, our marriage is going pretty good, do these same things. Don't stop dating your spouse. I mean it. Budget it as an item for each month. If you've got kids, pay for a babysitter. Uh, take your wife out to dinner. Value her. Listen to her. Continue to woo her just like you did when dating. Right? It's so easy to say, well, I got the ring on her finger. I'm done with that. No, no, no. Dating is a lifelong thing. Married people should date. And I love it when I'm in a restaurant with my wife and I see a couple at a restaurant that are like my great-grandparents' age or something. You know, it's just wonderful. Keep doing it. What a godly example. Date your spouse. Number four, recruit help early. Oh, excuse me, number three, recruit help early. Uh, my only regret with Tom's story is that he didn't ask for some kind of prayer and help until it had gotten to that point. There were plenty of times where he and his wife had struggled in their marriage and he had waited until the point of moving out of the house to open up to a Christian friend and try to get some help. If you get counsel for your marriage, you're not weak, you're wise. Wise Christians get counseling, right? Right? Get some help. 
feel free to talk to me or an elder. We'd love to help you and even get you connected with a good biblical counselor so you can get some help. And last, um, learn to fight fair. This is so, so important. Every married couple is going to quarrel. Every married couple is going to fight. Like, you might get married and make it a week or something. I don't know. Maybe you're, you're really saintly and you make it two weeks. But every married couple is going to fight at some point. What you got to learn is how to fight fair. There are just certain tactics that are off limits when Christian couples fight. So things like hurtful words or threats, demeaning language, always, never, scoring points with verbal jabs, those are off limits when you battle as a Christian couple. I would challenge you to pray together before you argue and imagine Jesus right there when you're speaking to your spouse. Also, fight together, right? It's not against each other. Your spouse is not your enemy. Satan is. You need to fight together to work toward a common solution. So we saw that God hates divorce because of the damage it does to whole families. If you've been divorced, please remember also to get help for your children. Even if they're older, get help for them. It is such, such a, a blow to a child when parents get divorced. And they may say, oh, I'm fine, or that's eh, not that big a deal. I know mom and dad didn't love each other anymore. They're hurting. Every child of divorce goes through something like a grieving process, wondering what they could have done to have stopped it. And they may benefit from talking to a counselor. Divorce, no matter the circumstances, is always tragic. If you know people in this church who are married, let me also challenge you. Those of you who are not married, please pray for us. Pray for Megan and I, please. We need it. Uh, we love one another. Praise the Lord. And I'm married way above myself when I got married, and we need your prayers. And so does every married couple here. From divorce drive, Jesus goes to swearing circle in verses 33 to 37. And he says there, you shall not swear falsely. And, and then he says, do not take an oath at all. And when he says, do not take an oath at all, there have been a lot of disagreements. Uh, some Christians have read this and concluded that what Jesus meant is you could not sign any kind of a contract you could not uh, take an oath of office so Christians can't serve in the military. Uh, and, and there are just many things therefore forbidden. And that's, I don't want to encourage you to do something that the Holy Spirit has convicted you against. But in this passage, Jesus is not forbidding any kind of contractual arrangement. How do you know that? Well, because God himself takes an oath when he makes a covenant to claim a people for himself forever and even signs it in blood. We could go back to the Old Testament and see that, but we don't even have to go back. The blood that Jesus sheds is a covenant oath for God to fulfill a promise to claim a people for himself forever. So if God takes an oath, then oaths cannot be categorically sinful. No, when it says, uh, in the Lord, we'll, we'll later get this. Jesus is talking about a particular kind of oath that the Pharisees had taught something that was wrong. If you want to see this, go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. And let me try to unpack this for just a minute. You see, the Pharisees had created this system for allowing people to wiggle out of a commitment on some kind of verbal technicality. Listen to Matthew 23 verse 16. 
Jesus says, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Jesus says, that's nonsense. What makes it important, the gold or the temple itself? He he says, no, 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 no. It's not that a Christian can never take an oath or make a promise. Jesus says, don't walk down, swear falsely circle. You see, the, the bottom line is, Jesus wants his followers to be men and women of meticulous honesty. When you say, yep, I'll do that, that means yes. When you say, no, I'm not gonna do that, that means no. He wants your word to be so trustworthy, you don't need to heap on, oh, I swear on my mother's grave, or I promise and, and, and I will uh, triple dog dare promise on this one. He doesn't want any of that mess. If a Christian says, yes, I'm going to do it. That's as good as some kind of a blood oath for that Christian. You ever had to teach your kids the difference between a lie and deceit? Right, a lie would be a clearly false statement. If I said something like, I'm not preaching. Well, it's a lie because I'm preaching, right? But if I said, I'm not reading the Bible, well, that would be deceptive because while I'm not reading the Bible right this minute, you could take that to mean that Pastor Jared didn't read the Bible this morning. And of course, he read the Bible a lot. Deceit is not technically false, but I'm hoping you will come to a false conclusion with my words. Jesus wants us to steer clear of all of it. The lies, the deceit. So we don't even get to the point of sometimes having to swear in order for people to take us seriously. Way back here, we want to watch our words so that when we say something, people believe us and they can depend on us. When I was a little kid, I collected baseball cards. Anybody else collect baseball cards or football cards or anything? A few of you, yeah. Maybe you're a little embarrassed to admit it. It's okay. They were silly. Uh, I I know some probably put them in the spokes of your bicycle just because it made a fun sound or whatever. Well, my friends and I, to collect them, would trade baseball cards, you know, because we all had our favorite players and we wanted to collect them. And I remember the trades would get very elaborate. Like, I'll give you four of these if you'll give me five of those, or I'll give you this one really shiny card if you'll give me those four not so shiny cards. And after we would trade, sometimes we'd go home and we'd look in what was called the Beckett catalog. It was like the stock index of sporting cards, you know, tell you the average price they were selling for around the nation. And let me tell you, if you went back and you checked the price and it wasn't what the other kid claimed it was going to be, oh man, we got so upset. I can remember a nine-year-old little me going and wanting to do something because somebody had given me a bad trade and we would try everything to wiggle out of it. You didn't tell me it was worth that. That means it doesn't count. You got to give them back. Or my mom told me I shouldn't trade with you, so you got to give them back. Or I, I, I just meant you could borrow the card, not that you could have it. And your time's up. You got to give. We tried everything. And a very creative little swearers uh, at nine and ten years old. But, but what, what has changed, right? As we grow up, we do the same thing. Jesus says, you should be so honest, so dependable. When you say yes, even if it hurts, you stick to it. Jesus will do this. Every single promise God 
makes, finds their yes in Jesus Christ. You don't believe me? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Here's just a few scenarios. If you draft a contract for work, be open with all parties involved. Don't try to, you know, slip something in, hoping that they won't actually read that part. They might just ask you, is this a good deal? Be honest with them. Lay it all out there. Don't just hide hoping that they don't read on the 12th page of the contract. If you're going to get married, don't sign prenuptial agreements. If you need to sign it, please talk to me first because something is wrong if you feel you need to have a contract for when the marriage dissolves even before you get married. And if you agree to purchase something for a given price, stick to it. This means we got to be careful with what we sign and agree to. We got to be careful where we say, yes, I'll honor that agreement. Because once we do, we are obligated by God to stick to our agreements. So Jesus warns us off of adultery alley and the very similar road, divorce drive. He tells us to live honestly and stay off swearing circle. And then he turns to revenge terrace. You know this verse, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus turns around and says, but do not resist an evil person. Where's all this coming from? Well, it's in the Old Testament. There are two places where an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth come up. One is in Exodus chapter 21 and the other is in the book of Leviticus chapter 24 verse 20. And Leviticus says this, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This was a law uh, to saying if, if I went and, and maimed someone, I didn't kill them, but maimed them, if, if it meant they couldn't walk, the just penalty for me under the law was I would be made to where I couldn't walk. If I made it to where they were blind, then I would be made blind. What's really incredible is in Exodus 21, the scenario, imagine, is a pregnant woman being injured in a fight. And the same protections for the born Israelite were extended to the unborn. If in that fight the pregnant woman was injured and the child came out injured, then whatever injury the child had would be done to the men who were fighting. But all of this is in place to prevent over-retaliation. Right? That's how feuds get started. Well, uh, you uh, came and wounded me, so I went and killed your whole family. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> it's one thing to wound somebody, but to, to go and kill their whole thing, that's over-retaliation. It's how feuds go on for generations. In Israel, they said, no, 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 no. Eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Now, the problem is the Pharisees had taught that that meant I, when I'm wounded, was entitled to seek that kind of personal revenge as long as I didn't cross the line. So, Chuck wounds me. I can go get personal revenge on Chuck as long as I don't go overboard. And that was never the intent of Leviticus 24 or Exodus 21 to sanction vengeance. We know vengeance belongs to the Lord. So Jesus gives these scenarios. And what he says, ultimately, if we backed up is, hey, 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 Christian, you're forgiven. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You have heaven as your home. When you experience slight infractions against you, you're to respond differently with the kind of mercy you've received. 
Every scenario Jesus gives is an offense, but it's not deadly, right? A slap on the cheek. I, I mean, okay, maybe in the history of mankind, I couldn't find one. Somebody has been slapped to death, but generally a slap is painful, but not life-threatening. Sued for your tunic. Okay, yes, a, a small-scale lawsuit or theft. This is a problem, but it's not going to ruin your livelihood. It's not like they're taking your land. Forced to walk a mile. The limit on how far a Roman soldier could make you walk was a thousand paces. That was inconvenient and that was troubling, but it wouldn't totally damage you. Beggars and borrowers may feel annoying or an inconvenience, but, I mean, let's be honest, if somebody forgets to return my craftsman tool, it's not as if my life ceases to exist. The point is, Jesus wants our hearts to be so in sync with his, we don't walk down Revenge Terrace. When are you tempted to get revenge, right? It starts not at the point of, well, I'm going to go shoot that person in the face. It starts with, they never gave me my nice craftsman tool back. What a jerk, right? It starts with, I can't believe they did that. They did that on purpose. That was, that was harder than it needed to be. I'm going to get them, right? It starts with things like that. And, you know, we could debate, well, were they wrong to slap or to sue or to force me or to beg? Maybe, but quite frankly, in this passage, Jesus doesn't care about the one suing or slapping or begging. He cares about you and I who are being slapped and sued and begged from. He wants us to let go of some of our rights and show somebody the mercy that we've been shown. That's what this is about. Christian fairness would have had every single one of us bound for hell and we were shown mercy. And so God says, when you're slapped, let it go. Think about it this way, because I, I haven't been slapped in a long time. Um, Christian, how do you respond when you go and sit down to dinner and the waitress has a rotten attitude and gets your order wrong? Do you make sure to go to the manager and, and try to get that, that girl in trouble for her rotten attitude? Or do you, you really stick it to him and say, I'm never going to leave her a tip? Why not just leave a tip? and be, let it go and be in the Lord's hands? How do you respond when your boss publicly says something that's a little humiliating? You know, Jared, you really dropped the ball on that one. You know, what do you do? Do you immediately rise to defend yourself or you say, you know what, so what? This is not going to impact my bottom line. He's not firing me. He's just poking a little fun at me. How do you respond to that customer service person from Comcast when they get your bill wrong again? Do you try to get them fired by talking to the manager? Or do you say, you know what, God, you're big enough for this. You've, you've shed your blood on my behalf. If we looked at every single one of these, Jesus experienced them all and did not go the route of revenge. Slap on the cheek. Yep, he was done that when he was accused of being a blasphemer. Sued for his tunic. They took his cloak too and they gambled over it. Forced to walk a mile. And he walked as far as he could and then they had to bring Simon of Cyrene in to carry the cross the rest of the way. Beggars and barrios, borrowers, they begged from Jesus all the time and he had compassion and fed thousands even when it felt like an interruption. 
Here's an amazing proverb, and I think it's humorous. Those of you who know your handguns, you know what a 1911 is? This is Proverbs 1911. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You want to be glorious in the eyes of God? Let it go. It's, it's a minor infraction. Let it go and trust vengeance to God. Well, lastly, in hatred way, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor and you shall actually love your enemies. Leviticus 19.18 had gotten corrupted to mean, all I have to do if I'm an Israelite is love my fellow Israelites. As long as I love them, I can hate God's enemies all day long. That's fine. Just got to not cross the fence and not love my fellow Israelite. And if we looked back in the passage, again, the intention of the passage was to expand love beyond one's immediate family to the whole nation. It was not meant to convince anyone to hate anybody. But Jesus has to come along and say, you know what? The intention of the law is to love even your enemies. I was talking with some brothers last night and Enemies is such a strong word. You know, who's my enemy today? Think of the person who's really different from you. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe they speak a different language. Maybe they voted for a different presidential candidate from you. Jesus wants us to know that loving the different person shows I understand the gospel. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He's going to hang on a cross and he's going to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And that's the same prayer he prays over us as the Holy Spirit works on our hearts to move us to receive the gospel because we were nothing but lost sinners and rebels when God reached in and changed us and says, I want that one. I want him. I want her to be forgiven. I was an enemy when Jesus loved me. So you get a pass on loving your enemies if you don't need God's grace. There's anybody here who has so lived and breathed and spoken that you don't need the grace of God, then you can hate your enemies all day long. But if you're like the rest of us and you need the grace of God because you were once his enemy, then we must love those who are different from us. That means those who don't vote the way we do, those who don't drive the way we do, and those who don't speak like we speak, we are called to love them. Jesus finishes all of this by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you've been listening this morning, whether it's adultery alley or divorce drive or revenge terrace, whether it's a swearing circle or this hatred way, you probably are feeling about an inch tall. I know I was when I read this passage. I mean, Jesus just called us hateful, revengeful, adulterous people. You know, it's, it's really uh, every single one of us has to get to the end of this passage and honestly say, we need help. It is impossible to live up to the bar that Jesus just set. And that's the point. 
None of us can perform open heart surgery on ourselves. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need a Savior who will go to the cross for us because he's lived the perfect life for us. You cannot be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or be mature as your heavenly father is mature. You can't do it on your own. But we have a Savior who did it for us. We trust Jesus. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. Hey, Living a pure life off of adultery alley, that's the life of love and joy the Spirit has for you. Living a life of a committed marriage off of divorce drive, that's the life of love and joy that God has for you. Living an honest life off of swearing circle is a life of love and joy. Living a humble life off of revenge terrace is a life of love and joy. Living a loving life off of hatred way is a life of love and joy enjoy. This way is very narrow, and so is the gate to get onto it, and that's the point. In Jesus, we go through that narrow gate, we get on that narrow way, and there is life. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and you may say, you know, I don't know that I've ever experienced forgiveness like that. The Bible says that we're all like sheep, We've all gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord had to lay on his son the iniquity of us all. We all have to be forgiven by the Savior. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, this morning I'll invite you in prayer to confess your sins to God, to believe that he alone died for you, and to commit to follow him. The Bible does reveal that Jesus' name is above all names and that we should all bow. We all have to choose, though, when we're going to bow. Because if you don't choose to bow in this life, you will bow one day, but you'll be forced to before you're consigned to a place to suffer forever. Don't wait till then, till it's too late to choose to bow before Jesus. Hey, Christian, if you're like me, I told you, Jesus had a very convicting chapter for us today. Remember that there is grace and there is forgiveness. As we fail in these areas, go back to your Savior and trust him and then get up and walk again and help somebody up. This is not going to happen overnight. This is a lifelong journey and we need one another. You might look around and say, well, I'm not struggling in that area, but there's somewhere you're struggling. And if you know somebody at this church who is struggling, love them and help them carry their burdens. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel. The good news that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. Because right now, Holy Spirit, if if we have listened to you, we're just feeling the weight of how far short we fall. We're all on one of these roads, if not multiple, at some point. And we need you to forgive us and to empower us to get off of them. Jesus, I ask right now that you would please move the heart of anyone in here who's not yet a Christian, that's not yet surrendered everything to you. Jesus, I ask that you hear them. Hey, if you've never confessed your sin to God, never said, you know, I'm on the wrong path, confess that right now. Whatever path it is, confess to Jesus, say, I am a sinner and it's wrong. 
Jesus, I ask that you hear and that you move hearts. If there's someone here who says you've never actually trusted that it's by Jesus' death on the cross for your sins alone that you're forgiven, tell him. Tell him you believe in him alone for that salvation right now. And if you've never committed to Jesus as the Lord of your life, tell him right now. Say, I commit to follow you as Lord. Hey, if you prayed that prayer for the first time with every head bowed and eye closed, would you just look up at me and make eye contact so I can see your eyes? Anybody pray that prayer for the first time? Just look up at me and make eye contact. I see those eyes right now. Anybody else? Father God, bless this one. Please hear this prayer. And would you be pleased to do as you've promised and forgive this person? Please, God, assure them that they are new, that they are forgiven, set free, adopted, and loved. I just pray your blessing on this person's life. And and, and this person, please come find me after the service so that I can talk with you, please. Hey, Christian, I want to pray a blessing over you. Father God, would you help us not to go down these roads that you say are wrong? Would you help us to get off of them and experience the joy of living your way? And would you help us to be the kind of church that loves one another and helps one another to get off these roads? Not in judgmental attitudes as if we're not all on them, but in compassion and in in help and in mutual edification. Jesus, Make us the kind of people that do life together, please. I ask these things in your name. Amen.